Welcome to the Princeton Evangelical Free Church Podcast. I'm John Padno, the lead pastor here at PEFC, where it is our desire to equip people to grow together in Christ. Our hope is that this podcast is a help and an encouragement to you this week. May God bless you as you listen. Well, good morning, church. Welcome once again to Princeton Evangelical Free. Would you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8. Before we uh, take a small break for our Advent series, I really wanted to look at this man named Paul. Uh, See, most of us know this man named Paul because he wrote the majority of the New Testament. But before Paul became Paul, he was a man named Saul who was very far from God. And before Saul became Paul, he had to be radically transformed by the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I began to think about that, you know, what do we have uh, that we relate to that really encompasses that amount of complete transformation? And I began to think of some of our favorite shows on HGTV, uh, like Fixer Upper, or Extreme Makeover. And so I entitled this sermon, and probably one of my top five titles for sermons, uh, Extreme Makeover, Saul Edition. Let's take a look here. The idea of a fixer-upper, I think, to a lot of people is a dumpy little house with a $20,000 budget. We really want to twist that. We want to turn that on its ear. For us, we've just always loved and admired old houses. You know, the people that put these together were craftsmen. The before is typically this rundown house that looks haunted. For just a normal couple walking in, I just think it's terrifying. I could see why this house sat on the market. It doesn't scare us off. We'll walk you through this house. We'll walk you through the construction. And then, welcome home. Oh my God. Some of the descriptors of these are old, dumpy, almost look haunted. And yet the reaction as they do the big reveals of what these houses look like afterwards with all the planning and vision and work, uh, there's shock, there's gasping, there's tears of joy as people see this house transformed. Uh, as I was driving, some of you may recognize this house. It's uh, if you go on the road further down. Uh, as I was driving down the road after meeting with Kevin, I saw this house and I was like, this is perfect. This is a perfect example of Saul and his life before meeting Jesus. As you look at this house, this house shares a similar story to those that are in Fixer Upper. Uh, it's something that is broken down and in desperate need. Would you describe this house as in desperate need? Absolutely. Uh, Some of these places, most of these places are in a state that to the world looking from the outside in, uh, they look at this and say, this is a hopeless cause. It would be better off to start with a whole new project than to do anything with this house. And last but not least, uh, a lot of these houses in a house like this, uh, For most of us, we say there's just too much that needs to be done and it just wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth the time and it may never work out. And yet I think uh, in my life, 
as in Saul's life, and I suspect for most of you that we have been described in a similar state. Right, that there have been people in my life that have looked at me and have said, he is in desperate need and is in brokenness. I know that there are some that would probably say he's a hopeless cause or he isn't worth the time. And yet this is where the grace of God finds us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness as it chases after us. We thank you for your word and the truth that is found in Scripture. And we thank you that we get to come here this morning and we get to wrestle with it. And yet more importantly, uh, Lord, I just pray that it would continue to wrestle with us as we leave this place and that we would be reminded of the ways that you have transformed us and yet still give us and let us see a glimpse of the vision of how you are transforming and will complete that transformation one day. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. We begin here and we see the broken and the hopelessness that is Saul. Look at it with me, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, last time we picked it up in Acts, Stephen becomes the first martyr. He's proclaiming the gospel. People begin to set down their coats and throw stones at him, and yet they throw their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8 that Saul approved of Stephen's execution because of the message that he was teaching. And there arose on that day a great amount of persecution against the church in Jerusalem, so much so that they were all scattered through all the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Scattered like uh, I went up north uh, this, this last week, deer hunting for the last couple days. First day there, I saw a wolf and heard a big wolf pack. Guess what happened? The deer just scattered. Right? That's, that's what they do. They're being hunted, and so they all leave and rightfully so. It says Saul in verse 3, he was ravaging the church. Everyone say ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now, out of all the persecution that maybe we've ever faced in our lives, never have we ever thought about the reality of someone busting down our door and dragging us out. Have we ever? I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's intense. Look at chapter 9. We skip a section of narrative, a very good section, but we again get a picture of Paul, verse 1, chapter 9. He is breathing threats and murder. This is his purpose. This is his air that he is breathing against the disciples of the Lord. Even to the point he goes to the high priest, he asks for a letter to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, belonging to Christ, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the way of Saul in rebellion and in sin. He describes himself before coming to know Jesus. He says, I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He, before Christ, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He says, the saying is, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. He lived out these words that he would later pen in Romans, 
that though they knew God's righteous decrees and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And yet, as we think about Saul, as we think about the state that he was in before coming to know Jesus, what we must know is that we are more like Saul than we are unlike Saul. As he says in Ephesians, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And yet what seems to be a hopeless cause, enter in God and his sovereignty. As we think about the church growing and, and even exploding, what could be worse for the church at this point what could be a bigger setback than such persecution being ravaging on the church? I want to ask some kids. To, I need some helpers. I need some kids, some teens to come forward as we illustrate this next point. Now, first service, I had to, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Children, come to me. Parents, let them. Let them come to me. I'm asking this. Let's see the sovereignty of God at work, even in persecution. Come on up here. I've got something to give you. There you go. Right now, the church is exploding and growing. And do you know where it is located? All of these people are receiving the gospel message in a singular place called Jerusalem. And we would say that persecution and being drugged out of homes is a huge setback for the church, is it not? to the outside world, and yet, show everybody what you got. Everybody receiving the gospel message, and then persecution comes, everyone scatter. Go back to your seat and hold up your flame. Persecution comes, it looks like a setback. Stand up, show everybody. And yet, to us, what, uses, what is a setback God uses for the good that the gospel message would go out to more people in different places and more people would receive the gospel. Thanks, kids. This is what God does. He uses what we see as setbacks for his good. And yet, there are examples of this that we have in our life. How many of you have things going on in your life right now that you might call a bit of a setback to your plans of what you would like to do? How many of you have things going on in your life that you would say are not going exactly the way you'd want them to? So instead of pulling out a crystal ball and telling everybody's fortune here, I think what's better is that I want you to go home. If this is the way that God works, right? We see it over and over again in Scripture. We talk about it. If this is the way that God works, then what you need to do is you need to say, okay, Lord, I see this. I see this isn't going how I want it to. I see this as a setback, and yet you said you're going to bring good out of it. So how are you bringing about good in the midst of this setback? How are you bringing out your purpose in the midst of this? 
This is more than positive thinking, but rather it's seeing and recognizing what God has and is already doing and thanking Him for it. Suddenly for Paul, there is a light and this hopelessness meets sovereignty. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 9. It says this, Now, as he went on his way, right? Paul is going on his way, persecuting Christians who are of the way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he could not see. And so he is like a helpless child led by the hand and brought into Damascus in complete surrender. For three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor did he drink. One of the first things that we see in this scenario is uh, Jesus reveals himself to Paul and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He identifies so clearly and distinctly with all Christians experience persecution. Sort of like, uh, does anyone remember 9-11? For those of you who are alive, was 9-11 attack just on the trade towers or just on New York? No. It was an attack on America in that identity. In this way, Jesus identifies himself with us this closely. His care, his grace, his love, and patience, they're knit together with us more than we realize, and this should leave us with wonder and encouragement today. But the moment that Jesus reveals himself to Paul, you have to be wondering what is going through Paul's mind. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuting, right? The one you've been railing against. What was Paul thinking and feeling in this moment? Do you think he was feeling good about the choices that he made? Do you think he was feeling good about the road that he had been walking down for how many years? Absolutely not. I think he really felt the depth of his unfruitfulness He felt his sin was uh, completely exposed. I'm sure he felt ashamed, as though he were naked. And yet this is where God meets Saul. God's sovereignty is not just big enough to have a vision to see through the brokenness, but it's big enough to make it into something beautiful. Like the promise in Philippians 1.6 that he who started a good work in you would bring it to completion. But it's not going to be completion here on the earth. Saul in this moment, although he is completely changed, God still has more work that he's going to do in Saul's heart. He is not complete even in meeting God in this moment. In fact, later on he writes about having a thorn in his flesh that may never go away. Whatever it is, we don't know. In this moment, what what is radical change for Paul? Paul's going to stop murdering Christians. 
and now preach the gospel. A very practical thing to do, right? To stop hunting after people. And yet I suspect there were deeper things that Jesus had to change in Paul's life as he continued to follow him. Beloved, I want to tell you this, that the sovereignty of God is not a sterile sovereignty, but a loving and caring sovereignty. God is not taking wood and construction material, but he's taking flesh and blood, hearts and minds, feelings and fears, and with precision and gentleness in real time is changing all of those things. For some of you, uh, if you were to ever have a procedure done to do any sort of change in your life, even the most skilled surgeon would have to do what? Would have to put you under. So you didn't move. And yet God is so good, God is so powerful, God is so sovereign that he doesn't put you under. But as you are living your life, he is moving and working and changing and molding. That's incredible. One way God does this transformation process is by disarming us in order that we would truly surrender to his leading. Paul was being made helpless so that he would be surrendered to God physically and spiritually. He's on his crooked way, chasing after people of the way. And where does he meet somebody? Verse 11, rise and go to the street called Straight. For Paul, God brought his word. He brought physical blindness so that he would be forced to be led to the place that God wanted him to be. To be taught with listening ears and to be prayed over. And so for us, I want to tell you, beloved, that God may be speaking to you and wants you to grow and be fruitful in certain areas of your life. But before before you experience this fruitfulness, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to shine a light and reveal to you just how unfruitful and how crooked your way has been. In other words, this process of God's transforming work, it's going to look and feel a lot worse before it looks and feels a lot better. What do I mean by that? Uh, in my own life, in beginning of my journey, I became a Christian when I was 16. And so what it looked like uh, to live a surrendered life after become a Christian was very practical. I had to no longer cuss like a sailor. I mean, all the way since as early as third grade, my mom received a few notes about how I used my words in an unrighteous manner, to say the least. It meant throwing away things out of my life and, and reading scripture. These were very practical and tangible things. Yet the next season of fruitfulness was not so easy. It was in regards to my own selfish heart. Before God could work on my selfishness, he first needed to reveal to me the depth of my selfishness, the width of my selfishness. And this was very painful. Yet to the depth that I could feel this pain, is the depth to which Jesus was going to bring change and fruitfulness. Maybe for you it is selfishness. Maybe it's not. Maybe for you it's anger. Before God is going to work on your anger, maybe he might reveal to you how 
ugly that outburst of anger truly is. How absolutely unfruitful it is. So that you're not going to say, oh, I just need some new paint on the outside. But you're going to say, I need you to gut it out completely. Maybe for some of us, the pain is going to come from feelings of bitterness and unforgiveness that you've been harboring for years and decades. How many of y'all are going to Thanksgiving dinner? Meeting up with family? Before God's going to work on that unforgiveness and that bitterness, he's going to reveal to you how deep those roots go, how much they affect all of your interactions in order that you're going to say, you know what, I need you I need you to take it completely. Beloved, the depth that you feel, the unfruitfulness, the depth that you feel and recognize the mess is the depth that you'll be truly ready to surrender it all to Jesus so that he can bring change. So that you're finally ready to listen to what he says and allow others to speak into your life. You see, God's chosen instruments don't start out as the number one choice. Look at it with me in verse 10. It says, as we begin to close, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? Ananias said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And I gave Paul a vision that a man named Ananias was going to come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, you can't trick me. I know who this guy is. I've heard from many people about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. And I know that here he has authority to put me in prison. And so do you want me to go to prison? But the Lord has said to Ananias, go. For Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, everyone say immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And verse 20, immediately, everyone say immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying that he was in fact the son of God. Ananias here, even in the story, we see he's used as an instrument in God's hands. In the next 10 verses, Paul uh, and his life, because he's preaching the gospel, is threatened at least twice in just 10 verses. God sends him immediately to go and do the Great Commission. It's very clear for him. As we begin to think about some practical things for our life this week, I think it'd be helpful to look at Ananias and how he was used as an instrument. For those of you who know and love Jesus, first and foremost, when the Lord calls, what must you do? What did Ananias do? He answered. 
And the Lord calls, answer this week. Even answer out loud. Say, here I am, Lord. If you, if you journal prayers, write it down. Here I am, Lord, to be used. Now, Ananias, was he a little bit reluctant to do what God said? Was he a little bit afraid? Does that mean he was completely disqualified and God was like, okay, I'm going to use somebody else? No, absolutely not. Beloved, because you are reluctant at first, because you're afraid or confused, it does not disqualify you from deciding later to follow God. God, in fact, is a God of second and third and fourth chances. Let me give you an example that puts a little flesh and blood on this idea. So about a week or two ago, y'all remember when it got super duper cold, right? When it gets really cold, the air in your tires, you've got to take out all the air and put in winter air. Just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. When it gets really cold, your, airs be, your tires begin to deflate. Mine did. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Quick Trip. I'm going to get some lunch. I'm going to go put some air in my tires. So I go and head over there. And as I'm over there, I hear the Lord. Uh, and he says, John, you got to go air up your tires here because there's a woman who needs your help. And I said, okay. And I look over as I'm pumping gas and there's a woman and she's, you know, she's airing up her tires. And, and I don't want to pretend like ladies, you can't air up tires or something like that. So I pull over there and I'm not going to presume she needs a knight in shining armor to come and help her. And so we do that thing, you know, I wave out the window and she looks like she's got it all set. And so, you know, I give her a thumbs up and she's good to go. And I'm waiting there and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, well, uh, she doesn't need my help. So you know what? I I'm just going to go. I'll, I'll air up my tires another time. And as I'm driving around the, the truck stop there, the Lord's like, no, John, you've got to go and you got to go air up your tires because there's a woman there who needs your help. And I'm like, Lord, Coburn's is right up here. I can just go get air at Coburn's. Why do I have to go back there? And so luckily, I just drive right back in. And I'm sure as I circle around, anyone pumping their tires is like, what is this guy doing? Just making circles around the parking lot. I go and there's nobody there. And so I go and I begin airing up my tires and I'm on the ground. And then all of a sudden I feel this tap on my back. And I look behind me and, and there's this older woman there. And she goes, could you help me air up my tires? My tires are low. And I'm like, oh yeah, of course, I'll help you. And so I finish with my tires, and she pulls up her car, and as I begin to finish with her last tire, uh, she goes, you know, you're helping a recent widow. I, I don't, I've never had to do this before, and my husband, he just passed away a few days ago. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. And, and I get up, and she goes, hey, can I pay you? And I said, no, listen, uh, you don't have to pay me. The Lord told me that there was a woman who needed her, her tires to be filled up, and and you're that woman. And I just said, I, I'm truly so sorry uh, for your loss. And, and I gave her a big hug and I could just see the, the tears welling up in her eyes. You know, this is, I, I didn't know I was confused the first time. And yet, the Lord still brings you back around. You still have time to be obedient to what he has for you this week. We have Saul his extreme makeover into Paul. The arrester became the arrested by grace. The one who was, who was laying hands on Christians now had hands laid upon him to receive the Holy Spirit. 
The enemy became a brother. The blind man received sight both physically and spiritually. Paul is still hunting for Christians, but this time he's hunting for people to become Christians. See, for Paul, mistaken identity seemed to be a better explanation than that this man was transformed at such a level, and yet this is the unexpected work that God does still today. As Albert Moeller, commentator, said that mission continues still. And though you and I have not been converted in the same manner as Saul was, nor called to be missionaries to the Gentiles as he was, we have nevertheless been converted by the power of the living God to serve the living God by proclaiming the gospel of the living God. Amen? And if Saul's conversion teaches us nothing else, it is that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel of God, and thus we should see that it is always worth our every effort to share it with everyone. Paul gives us an apologetic for the faith. He who used to persecute us now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy. What gain would he have to do that? And so if there is nothing to gain, it must be the work of God. Christian, I want to encourage you. Uh, there's many people in your life who need to hear the gospel. If that is not true, you need to find some people and bring them into your life. But as you share your story, see, many people can reject theories, even scientific theories they can reject. But what's a lot harder to reject and to defy is a personal story of how God has worked in you. So I encourage you to give your gift of your story of being transformed by grace to somebody else. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for who you are because you have done all of these things, and even more. You've taken our brokenness. You have taken our helpless state. You have taken from the outside, looking in, something that seems so worthless, and yet you've brought out the worth that is already there. You have revealed your glory, your beauty, as you take brokenness and you use it for beauty and glory. So, Father God, for all of us here, Lord, I pray that you would bring the application as you see fit and your Holy Spirit would be quickened in us that we would not only hear his voice, but we would say, here I am, Lord. What do you have for me today? It is in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast and consider subscribing and sharing with others. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please go to princetonfree.com. God bless.